Nukes in space. It's easy to ignore the implications of radioactive materials on board rockets, satellites, even the Mars rover. But even if you assume that you're immune to the consequences of nuclear so terribly far away, you get a real wake-up call when you hear a genuine expert talk about an early accident that happened in connection with space, and he tells you, in this SNAP 9A launch, it didn't achieve orbit. The satellite comes crashing back to Earth, breaks apart, disintegrates, with the plutonium spread wildly over the planet. Dr. John Goffman of the University of California at Berkeley, an MD, a PhD, involved in some of the isolation of plutonium during the Manhattan Project, connected that disaster to a rise in lung cancer on Earth. Well... When you learn about yet another nuclear danger that we all face, and the person delivering that information is the eminent investigative journalist Carl Grossman, you can trust that it's true. And yet another example of how every last one of us on this planet is clamped into that awful seat that we all share. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat, it's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I'm the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, we hear from veteran environmental journalist Carl Grossman, who explains how the dangers posed by nuclear power and weapons in space is more wide-ranging and immediate than most of us suspected, and how there's some nuclear damage that has already, invisibly, been done to our health and well-being because of nukes in space. And we'll also hear about a great paid fellowship opportunity offered to young people, young people in the movement, yay, by Beyond the Bomb. Rachel Trezik, a former recipient of this fellowship, shares details not only about the fellowship, but about how receiving it changed her life. We will also have nuclear news from around the world, numbnuts of the week for outstanding nuclear boneheadedness, and more honest nuclear information than got any kind of entertainment award or even nomination so far this year. All of it coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, March 16, 2021, and here is this week's nuclear news from a different perspective. Last week, on March 11th, was the 10th anniversary of the start of the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear disaster. The world's press was awash with stories about nuclear, from the propaganda of Bill Gates and others all the way up to actual reports of what happened to the people who lived in and evacuated from Northeast Japan. Greenpeace Japan issued two reports that highlight the complex legacy of the earthquake, tsunami, and nuclear disaster one decade ago. 
Fukushima 2011 to 2020 detailed radiation levels in Itate and Namie in Fukushima Prefecture. Greenpeace's original findings showed that decontamination efforts have been limited and that 85% of the special decontamination area has undergone no decontamination. The second report, Decommissioning of the Fukushima Daiichi Nuclear Power Station, critiqued the current official decommission plan within 30 to 40 years as having no prospect of success and says that it is delusional. Sean Burney, senior nuclear specialist at Greenpeace East Asia, said, Successive governments during the last 10 years, and largely under Prime Minister Shinzo Abe, have attempted to perpetuate a myth about the nuclear disaster. They have sought to deceive the Japanese people by misrepresenting the effectiveness of the decontamination program and ignoring radiological risks. He went on to say, The decade of deception and delusion on the part of the government and TEPCO must end. A new decommissioning plan is inevitable, so why waste any more time with the current fantasy? Greenpeace said its own radiation surveys, conducted over the last decade, have consistently found readings above government target levels, including in areas that have reopened to the public. The lifting of evacuation orders in places where radiation remains above safe levels potentially exposes people to an increased risk of cancer. Their reports confirm information that was shared on last week's Nuclear Hot Seat Voices from Japan special. And we'll post links to the articles on the website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 508. One collaborator with Japan on the fiction that there is no danger and that recovery is going well is the United Nations Scientific Committee on the Effects of Atomic Radiation, or UNSCIR. It has issued a report saying no adverse health effects among Fukushima residents have been documented. And Nuclear Hot Seat has covered the manipulation of the documentation to ensure that no clean data is available. The United Nations nuclear lapdog, uh, watchdog, the International Atomic Energy Agency, said that there was, quote-unquote, no evidence that the disaster had any detrimental effects on people's health. Ignoring the shocking number of thyroid cancer cases that have shown up among children, and dismissing the sharply higher rate of thyroid cancers detected among children as likely due to better diagnostics. This was strongly contradicted by Dr. Alex Rosen, a pediatrician who co-chairs the German affiliate of International Physicians for the Prevention of Nuclear War. He was interviewed on Nuclear Hot Seat, and that interview was picked up as source material for an article in the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, wherein Dr. Rosen said, Japan has clamped down on scientific efforts to study the nuclear catastrophe. There is hardly any literature, any publicized research on the health effects on humans. And those that are published come from a small group of researchers at Fukushima Medical University, which are centered around the scientist Shunichi Yamashita, who in Japan is called Mr. 100 millisieverts, because in the wake of the disaster, he not only recommended against administering iodine pills to prevent thyroid cancer, he told people that their best protection against radiation poisoning was literally to smile and be happy. Links on the website to both the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists article and Nuclear Hot Seat 498 with Dr. Rosen's full interview. 
The Fukushima District Court has ruled against plaintiffs in a lawsuit filed by parents and children who lived in the prefecture at the time of the accident at the nuclear power station, claiming that measures were not taken to avoid radiation exposure to their children. The 160 parents and children who lived there were seeking 100,000 yen per person in damages from the government and the prefecture. That sounds like a lot until you crunch the numbers and realize it's only $916 plus change in U.S. dollars. Now stories are flooding the media in Japan about the country being undecided about the timing and the method of releasing radioactive water from Fukushima Daiichi into the Pacific Ocean. Not if it should be released, but when and how. Note the change in emphasis on the story. And not only that... Nuclear hot seat, nuclear hot seat, nuclear hot seat, none that sound a week. Talk about your tone-deaf timing. On March 11, which was of course the 10th anniversary of the start of the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear disaster, the head of TEPCO's holding company, Tomoaki Kobayakawa, first apologize to the victims of the Fukushima nuclear disaster and then turn around and immediately added that nuclear power generation will still be needed and pushing for the restart of the number seven reactor at the Kashibazaki Kariwa nuclear plant in Nagita, only a little over 100 air miles away from Fukushima Daiichi. This poster boy for numbnuts of the week said that operating a nuclear plant contributes to a stable power supply. Yeah, how stable was it at Fukushima? He then said that nuclear protects the environment. There isn't even a WTF big enough to cover that one. And he completely ignored recent questions about the fitness of TEPCO and its ability to safely run a nuclear plant when, according to recent reports, in September, a TEPCO employee entered a central control room at the Kashiwazaki Kiryu plant using the ID of another employee, something not reported for four months. And since January of 2021, several safeguard measures at the plant were not finished, despite earlier reports stating that they were. In response, Kobayakawa said, we will get to the bottom of these incidents and repair our corporate culture. No, dude. You've got to repair the damage you have done to people and the environment through Fukushima Daiichi and shut all the rest of them down forever while you figure out what you're going to do with the waste. And that is why, once again, Tokyo Electric Power Company, TEPCO, and your toady minions, you are this week's Nuclear Hot Seed, none that's out a week. Here in the United States, support for nuclear reactors is starting to be reversed. Lawmakers in the Ohio House voted to repeal a $1 billion bailout for two nuclear plants that federal investigators say were at the heart of a state bribery scandal. Since the controversial House Bill 6 passed, former Ohio House Speaker Larry Householder was arrested in connection with a $61 million bribery scheme to elect him leader of the House so that he could pass the nuclear bailout and defend it against a ballot initiative to block the law. 
if passed, House Bill 128 would axe subsidies for the Energy Harbor plants, eliminate a first energy fee meant to keep the company, quote, recession-proof, end quote, and repeal a benefit that helped a subsidiary avoid refunding customers for significantly excessive profits. In Michigan, the state attorney general is objecting to the transfer of the Palisades nuclear plant and a spent waste storage site on Lake Michigan, arguing that Holtec, the company planning to take ownership of both sites, lacks adequate financial resources and has underestimated the decommissioning costs, saying that Holtec's plan, quote, endangers our environment and health and potentially leaves our residents to bear the costs of proper cleanup, end quote. Nevada lawmakers have filed a bill that would require the federal government to receive consent from state, local, and tribal entities before constructing a permanent repository for nuclear waste. The New Mexico Environmental Department has alleged in court that Los Alamos National Laboratory has failed to clean up its nuclear waste and alleged the Department of Energy displayed a pattern of failing to meet deadlines and benchmarks for hazardous waste cleanup at the federal nuclear facility in northern New Mexico. And to those who are still delusional enough to believe that nuclear waste can be safely shipped from nuclear reactors around the country to proposed interim storage sites in New Mexico and West Texas, this reminder... An 18-wheel truck hit a train carrying chemicals and fuels in Cameron, Texas on February 24th, causing a huge explosion and starting a fire that was expected to burn for several days. The first 11 cars of the train were filled with gasoline, coal, and petroleum products. Imagine if it had been highly radioactive used fuel rods from nuclear reactors. And in France, according to the NGO Association for the Control of Radioactivity in the West, dust from the Sahara Desert blown north by strong seasonal winds to France carried abnormal levels of radiation. The cesium-137 comes from nuclear tests carried out by France in the Algerian desert at the beginning of the 1960s. Nuclear Karma We'll have this week's featured interview in just a moment, but first... Nuclear problems are going to continue to be with us forever. From uranium mining to weapons production to radiation-leaking reactors to still not having a way to safely store the deadly radioactive waste produced by all these endeavors, and now, as you will hear, the dangers of reactors and weapons in space, nuclear is government and industry not caring how they contaminate the world as long as they keep making obscene profits and fool themselves into thinking they are immune to the consequences of their actions, when they most definitely are not. Meanwhile, we all have to deal with the dangers of radioactive contamination that will not go away on its own, ever. So let's be honest. Nuclear is a deadly mess. And that is why you need Nuclear Hot Seat. To get into nuclear stories with facts, continuity and context, as well as a healthy dose of skepticism, with a much deeper and nuanced telling that you would ever expect on mainstream media. We get behind the scenes, under the skin, and into the heart of nuclear matters every week, with fresh information, an unrelenting perspective, and even, whenever possible, humor. That's why the time would be right now to support us with a donation. Just go to NuclearHotSeat.com and click on the big red Donate button to help us with a donation of any size. 
And that same red button is where you can now set up a monthly $5 donation, the same as a cup of coffee and a nice tip here in the U.S. Please, we all need this information, so do what you can now and know that however much you can help, I am deeply grateful that you're listening and that you care. Now here's this week's featured interview. Now here's this week's featured interview. As regular listeners to Nuclear Hot Seat know, Carl Grossman is one of my favorite interviewees. He is an author and journalism professor at the State University of New York College at Old Westbury, host of the television program Enviro Close-Up with Carl Grossman, author of six books, and writer of an uncountable number of magazine, newspaper, and internet articles. Carl has been covering nuclear issues for over 50 years, and he carries our archives in his mind. Would that we could download and publish that. Here, we talk with him about nukes in space, the dangers they represent from launch to orbit to crash down. Kyle Grossman and I talked on March 12, 2021. Carl Grossman, it is always a pleasure to have you here on Nuclear Hot Seat. A pleasure always to be with you, Libby, on Nuclear Hot Seat. We're going to be talking about nukes in space today, and you have been on this subject for more than three and a half decades. How did you first come upon the information? Well, I was reading a, a Department of Energy newsletter, and there was an article in it about... Uh, two space shuttle shots in 1986, in which both the space shuttles, one being the Challenger, in fact, were to carry up into space plutonium-fueled space probes. And I had before done my book, Cover Up, What You're Not Supposed to Know About Nuclear Power, and I was quite aware that plutonium has long been described as the deadliest of all radioactive substances. And here they're talking about pounds of plutonium as fuel on these space probes. And the article went on that NASA and the Department of Energy and various national nuclear laboratories, Los Alamos and Oak Ridge and so forth, had done studies about the impacts, the consequences if there'd be an accident on these launches. So I I filed a Freedom of Information Act request asking for what those studies concluded. I've been writing for decades and decades on nuclear power, but the image I had of NASA was that it's a, a Boy Scoutish kind of agency. I mean, there was Neil Armstrong on the moon, an Eagle Scout, and so was I, an Eagle Scout. So I, I kind of figured that, you know, maybe this is a different kind of federal agency. Wow, was I incorrect. And I, I quickly found out how incorrect I was because instead of promptly and along the letter of the Freedom of Information Act law, provide me with information, nothing came. And the weeks passed, the months passed. There was a claim at one point that under the Freedom of Information Act, NASA wouldn't be required to provide highly technical information. And I had to respond that 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 was no exemption under FOIA, and I had to appeal. Finally, after about 10 months, I get a bunch of documents, and they spoke about accidents all kinds of accidents on the launch pad in the lower atmosphere, the upper atmosphere. I didn't know how to handle it because they claimed that the odds of a catastrophic shuttle accident was one in 100,000. And I mean, those odds are infinitesimal, would seem, 
that you'd have a, a serious accident in which plutonium was dispersed. And it was a few months later, I was on my way to teach my investigative reporting class when I, I hear on the car radio that the Challenger had blown up. This is January of 86, and I stopped into an appliance store along the Long Island Expressway, saw that ghastly image of the Challenger blowing up and poor Chris McAuliffe's parents sitting in their seats crying. I mean, so tragic. And what I was thinking though, if it would have been the next mission in May of 86, when the plutonium shot was to be, it wouldn't be six brave astronauts and a very brave teacher in space, Chris McAuliffe, who died. If that plutonium would have been released in the kind of explosion the Challenger underwent, depends where the wind would be blowing from. I mean, Orlando is not far off. I mean, you wouldn't want to go to Disney for maybe a couple of hundred years. And in any case, I call the Nation magazine. I've written for the Nation through the years and said, did you folks know that the next mission of the Challenger was to be a nuclear mission? And, and they didn't at all. And they asked me to write an editorial. I did. It was titled The Lethal Shuttle. That's 1986, January. And I've been on this issue, this story, if you want to call it a story, ever since. Did NASA really believe that the chance was only one in 100,000? Turns out that they brought a bunch of NASA scientists and engineers to the Marshall Space Flight Center and asked one at a time, what do you think the likelihood of a catastrophic shuttle accident would be? And one would say, well, very unlikely. And one would say extremely unlikely. And they translated these words to numbers. I mean, it was scandalous, no empirical evidence. And that's how they figured out one in 100,000. Few months after the Challenger catastrophe, the odds of one in 100,000 were changed to one in 76. Uh, so, uh, I mean, that those are correct odds. I mean, there were about 150 shuttle launches and two met with disasters. How is nuclear used in space? Is it propulsion? Is it weapons? Is there other ways that it's involved? Well, mainly through the years, the way it's been used. I mean, there's been attempts to use nukes for propulsion. In fact, right now, a big push for nuclear-propelled rockets to get to Mars. But the way it's been used up to now involves radioisotope thermoelectric generators. Now, it's a little technical, but plutonium-239, the kind of plutonium that's used in atom bombs or is the trigger in a hydrogen bomb, that has a half-life of 24,300 years. So multiply that by 20 and you figure how long it's radioactive. What they use in these space devices, plutonium-238, which has a, a far shorter half-life, like 88 years. And it's, it's hot because it's breaking apart, it's breaking down. It's disintegrating at a fairly rapid rate. And that heat is used to, uh, it's, it's a fairly complicated system, to generate electricity for really electrical power. That's what these RTGs on these space probes were to be used for, to generate a few hundred watts of electric power. They'd be propelled by chemical propulsion. Once the shuttle would be in orbit, then would they be able to release them and they'd fly off into space. So mainly it's been RTGs, radioisotope thermoelectric generators. So... We have a sense now of what we're up against. What attempts have been made to put treaties in place to limit nuclear exposure in space? 
None. <laughs> I mean, like zero. The Outer Space Treaty of 1967 prohibits the placement of weapons of mass destruction in space. But there's really nothing limiting any country from using nuclear power in space. So in other words, with every launch from whatever country is putting a vehicle into space, there's a potential for a nuclear component. And we are at danger from an accident happening. It's not just us, it's anybody. In fact, one of the two books I've written on this issue is called The Wrong Stuff, The Space Program's Nuclear Threat to Our Planet. It concerns uh, then-President Clinton visiting Australia. He was on vacation in Hawaii. He was going to go to Australia on a state visit the following day. But on the following day, the Mars 96 space probe, a Russian space probe with pounds of plutonium on it, was projected. It hadn't broken out of orbit. It was seen as coming back down to Earth, breaking up in the atmosphere and landing where? Australia. In the end, it landed on the Chilean-Bolivian border. These things can land anywhere. I mean, it's, it's like a dart game with a nuclear payload. Using nuclear in space, to me, I mean, terrestrial nuclear is dangerous enough, but using nuclear in space, I, well, just look at the record. I mean, this is not a, a sky is falling exercise. I mean, as I've investigated uh, the use of nuclear power in space, I've gone into, into accidents that have occurred. In the U.S. space program, the worst was a knap 9A accident in 1964. At that point, the U.S. was launching satellites powered by these RTGs, giving electric power. But in 64, in this SNAP-9A launch, it didn't achieve orbit. The satellite comes crashing back to Earth, breaks apart, disintegrates, with the plutonium spread wildly over the planet. Dr. John Goffman of the University of California at Berkeley, an MD, a PhD, involved in some of the isolation of plutonium during the Manhattan Project. I mean, he knew this, this area. Connected that disaster to uh, a rise in lung cancer on Earth. Three out of about 30 U.S. space nuclear shots have resulted in accidents. The Soviets, now Russia, they've done a little over 60. And they've had, including the Mars 96 space probe, They've had six accidents, the worst being a Cosmos satellite, which in 1978 came down on Canada, around the Great Slave Lake area of Canada, uh, just spreading nuclear debris for over 300 miles. So, I mean, there's a 10% failure rate with space nuclear shots. Thus, it's a game of a space-borne Russian and U.S. roulette. By the way, just a side note, but any time that I say we in terms of being at the affect of plutonium from any of these space shots, I'm using the planetary we of the human race. It's not just we Americans, but it's anybody who happens to live on this planet. Why is this being done? Why are we doing it? What is the rationale that makes this sound like a good idea to the people who are in charge of these programs? There's no good reason at all. 
For example, after the SNAP-9A accident, NASA became a pioneer in solar photovoltaic energy. I mean, if you go to a book on solar power, look at photovoltaics, these panels that take sunlight and create electricity out of sunlight. NASA indeed was a pioneer and after that disaster began using photovoltaic panels on the satellites. I mean, all the satellites now are solar power. So is the International Space Station. In terms of space probes, NASA insisted, okay, we can use solar panels on satellites, but when we go out into space uh, beyond the orbit of Mars, there's not enough sunlight. Yeah, well, actually, NASA then totally contradicted itself, finally, had an engineering epiphany in 2011 and tried to send a space probe to Jupiter, way out beyond the orbit of Mars, Jupiter, with its electric generation done by solar panels. And let me note that Juno is still up there exploring Jupiter. It's electricity from solar panels above a planet where solar energy, power from the sun is one hundredth of what it is on Earth. There's really no need. I mean, most recently, NASA, and there was all kind of hoopla among me here about this, landed the Perseverance rover on Mars. You hardly saw in any of the reporting on the Perseverance landing that Perseverance, electricity on Perseverance comes from RTG, an radioisotope thermogen. Perseverance had 10.6 pounds of plutonium-238 on it. And this comes after a series of rovers on Mars getting their energy from solar panels, solar panels. So the big question I, I kind of asked after, I mean, this goes back to, what, why, why are these folks doing it? For starters, you have to like the, oh, and, and all the president's men, it said that Deep Throat tells Bob Woodward, follow the money. Who's making money on this? And there was a little company called General Electric, which was producing these RTGs at that time. Then you have these national nuclear laboratories, spinoffs of the Manhattan Project, Los Alamos and Oak Ridge. And they want the money. They want these bucks coming in providing grants to do research in space nuclear power. So uh, they have a vested interest. And then finally, what I got into was Star Wars. It turned out that Star Wars and this, like the Perseverance energy source, was also in that time not reported. Star Wars was predicated on orbiting battle platforms. And on the battle platforms would be high-velocity guns, particle beams, and laser weapons energized by nuclear reactors on those battle platforms. James Abramson, General James Abramson, the commander of the Strategic Defense Initiative, he at one point said that without an extension cord down to earth, bringing up power for these weapons, we're gonna need nuclear power in space. We need nuclear reactors in space, he insisted. Now, how does this involve NASA and its activities? Well, NASA, after being established in 1958, year after Sputnik, as a, ostensibly a civilian agency, realized pretty quickly where the big money is in Washington, D.C., and that's at the Pentagon, and started to work together with the military, even though it was started as a civilian agencies. The shuttle, in fact, was 50-50, a civilian military vehicle, space shot after space shot, the government uses the term 
a dual purpose mission, a dual purpose to do what maybe a civilian purpose or a military. Many of those shuttle shots involved well, seven colonels going up there. And when they came back, there was no press conference. There was silence because it was a, a military mission. So NASA also followed the money, seeing that money emanates a lot of money from the Pentagon, wanted to do nukes and still wants to do nuclear in space. Just recently, the National Academies of Science, Medicine, and Engineering put out a report advocating, strongly advocating, nuclear-powered rockets, now nuclear-propelled rockets for Mars, and then went on in this report. You can get it online. Big, thick report, 104-page report about synergies, synergies between civilian and military in terms of the use of nuclear power in space. So that's, you know, that's how we've gotten where we are. And there is no need, or like the rovers, there is no need. I mean, there's been uh, important articles actually in the last year or so talking about how we could have colonies on the moon and Mars powered by solar, while NASA has been talking in recent years about, oh, we need nuclear-powered, nuclear-powered colonies on Mars and the moon. And then in terms of nuclear propulsion, again, mostly it's been RTGs, but in terms of actually propelling a rocket with nuclear power, and there was an attempt decades ago, it was called the NERVA, N-E-R-V-A, had a nerve to do this program of developing a nuclear-propelled rocket. Actually, that got nowhere because the concern was there was no need for it. And then meanwhile, the U.S. had tried to develop nuclear-powered bombers. In other words, you could have a a B-47 up there with nuclear power as its propulsion source. You wouldn't have to scramble an air crew. It would be up there all the time. And if we decide that we're going to nuke the Soviet Union, but then it came to, well, what are we going to do about the pilots? with a reactor on, on the bomber. How are we going to shield them? Well, we can use lead. That was the end of that project. And back to nuclear propulsion, there was an important story in the New Scientist magazine just last October. It's called The New Age of Sail. And it begins relating the story of a 17th century astronomer, Johann Kepler, observing that comets always have their tails pointed away from the sun, no matter which direction they're traveling. New Scientist, an excellent magazine, went on, speaking about how the sun produces a wind in space, and it can be harnessed that there's particles of light streaming from the sun, constantly a flow of charged particles. So what's being developed now for several years, solar sails. In fact, Japan launched its Icaros spacecraft in 2010, sailing in space using energy from the sun. The New Scientist piece spoke of scientists wanting to use these new techniques of solar sails, not just mylar. First it was mylar, but now there's all kind of other ideas to set a course, I'm quoting from the article, for worlds currently far beyond our reach, namely the planets orbiting our nearest star, Alpha Centauri. So we can have satellites that are not going to be loaded with plutonium that can fall on our heads. We can have rovers that wouldn't end up. Imagine if that rocket carrying the Perseverance up had exploded, had exploded on launch. 
trash. I mean, you could have a plutonium all over the place in Florida. I mean, it's very much like energy on Earth. And in terms of propulsion, we can, in fact, explore the heavens as far as to Alpha Centauri and beyond with solar sails. But again, you follow the money, you follow the vested interest, and you follow those who would make war using nuclear power. Another subject which is up, there's been, there's so many different directions we can go with this, but Space Force. Uh, We are bequeathed by the former resident of the White House with this quote unquote new branch of the military. What's the status? What's the danger? And what do we know about the current administration's position towards it? This Space Force is really Star Wars deja vu. What that person in the White House, an orange person, I think, in the White House for a while, unfortunately. And he said, it's not enough for the United States to have presence in space. We must dominate space. I mean, there's one country we're going to dominate space. Isn't that against the Outer Space Treaty of 1967, that space was to be used only for peaceful purposes? Yeah, it's, it's certainly in violation of the intent of the Outer Space Treaty. And the Outer Space Treaty was put together by the United States, the United Kingdom, and the former Soviet Union. And it's now been signed onto by most nations on Earth. And it sets aside space as a global commons for peaceful purposes. However, it only restricts, it only prohibits weapons of mass destruction. What our neighbor Canada has been trying to do for decades now, and Russia and China with Canada, is to expand the Outer Space Treaty to bar all weapons in space. And I've been at the United Nations to see votes, and it's called the Paros Treaty, Prevention of an Arms Race in Outer Space Treaty. Canada votes yes, China votes yes, Russia votes yes, country after country votes yes, And guess what country votes no? Essentially vetoing the enactment of the Paros Treaty at the UN. So in fact, when you hear during the Trump time about, oh, we have to have a space force because China and Russia are moving into space militarily, that's like not correct. And I've been to China. I've been to Russia a bunch of times. In fact, I was brought to Russia largely because of their Rachel Carson. Their leading environmentalist, Alexei Yablokov, he was the environmental advisor to Yeltsin and Gorbachev, and he had been for years against the use by the Soviet Union and then Russia of nuclear and space, and he had read my stuff, and that's how I got invited to Russia the first time. I ended up giving presentations, working with Alexei and stuff. But in any case, in speaking to diplomats from Russia, they do not want to blow their national treasury on deploying weapons in space. It's not like purchasing a Bradley fighting vehicle. You're talking about billions of dollars. And likewise, the Chinese, and they with our neighbor Canada, which is it's our friend, it's Canada, have been trying to broaden the Outer Space Treaty. But again, the US is uh, no, no, no. And let me also note here, you know, where the strategy by the US comes from. It actually comes from, this is heavy duty stuff, but it comes from Nazi scientists. After the war, the US brought over, it was called Operation Paperclip, over a thousand Nazi scientists. Werner von Braun, who was, uh, his project was the V2 rocket, vengeance for the V. He was brought over with a lot of his 
cohorts who worked on the V1 and the V2. And they ultimately, they went to the Redstone Army Arsenal in Alabama, and they developed the Redstone rocket, which was the first U.S. rocket capable of carrying a, a nuclear bomb, a nuclear weapon. Above him in the Nazi rocket program was General Walter Dornberger. He supervised the Nazi rocket program, and he comes over uh, and he becomes a consultant to the U.S. Air Force, and he writes a planning paper. This is back in 1947. In fact, 10 years before uh, Sputnik, envisioning a system of hundreds of nuclear-armed satellites, all orbiting at different altitudes and angles, each capable of re-entering the atmosphere on command from Earth to proceed to its target. And then the Air Force began work on Dornberger's idea under the acronym NAEBS for Nuclear Armed Bombardment Satellites. I'm a professor at State University of New York, and an, an excellent book on the use of weapons and, and, and nuclear in space is Arming the Heavens by Jack Mano, who has also been a professor at SUNY at the College for Environmental Science and Forestry in Syracuse. And he writes, before a congressional hearing, Dornberger insisted, and he laid out as his vision, and insisted the top space priority of the United States needs to be conquer, occupy, keep, and essentially dominate space. So the origin of our space program comes from a very, uh, what would be the word? Very evil, evil people. I mean, Werner von Braun, he went on, became associate director of NASA, and uh, what a bunch. I mean, these people should have been tried for crimes against humanity and not brought over to the United States to help develop our space program, civilian and military and plant a seed, which continues on and on these days, most recently with this U.S. Space Force, which if it's let to go, let me say right now, Russia and China do not want to deploy weapons in space, but if the U.S. does it, they're going to do it. They've been very clear about it. We don't want to, but if we have to, we're going to do it. And if this is going to be the end game here, and they do it, this U.S. Space Force is going to end up with weapons in space. And the consequences of a war involving space, imagine again going back to Star Wars, nuclear-powered battle platforms above our heads. And the Russians, the Chinese probably have to do the same kind of thing. And imagine an exchange and the radioactive debris. I mean, for those listening to this broadcast who are like Trekkies, thinking that I'm knocking the space program, I'm trying to have it be done right, because if this leads to war in space and radioactive debris coming raining down on this planet, beyond all the people who can end up dead, that's far beyond the SNAP-9A plutonium debris, way beyond that, there'll be so much debris. Some of it will come down, but some of it will be up in space for centuries, or if not more. We're not going to get up and out to explore space. So. In my view, I was so disappointed that Biden said he was going to stick with the Space Force. But it, sh it should also be noted that uh, Democrats helped get the uh, National Defense Authorization Act. This is from a year and a half ago, passed by Congress. Most Democrats voted for it, which contained the provision for a, a U.S. Space Force, a sixth branch of U.S. Armed Forces, 
that would have the U.S. dominate, dominate space. All of this is, of course, very deep and tremendously upsetting because it's a potential future for all of us. And it seems to be rolling in that direction if nothing is done to stop it. What, in your estimation, needs to be done and can be done, actions that we can take to start turning this around and stopping it? Well, there's some good people in office. For example, when the U.S. was, well, it did it, the Cassini space probe mission with like 72 pounds of plutonium and so forth. Uh, Congressman Jerry Nadler joined me. He had read my book, The Wrong Stuff. He had me come to Washington. He got together with other Congress people. We had a press conference in front of the Capitol saying this is a terribly dangerous mission, which involved actually a flyby. Cassini would whip by the earth just a few hundred miles high. So we have some some good people, but uh, again, Democrats in Congress voted very strongly for this space force. It has to be action by the grassroots. And I've always thought that that's the way change occurs from the grassroots. And the organization which is here and people listening should join with, I was involved in its formation, the Global Network Against Weapons and Nuclear Power in Space. I was there in Washington, D.C. in 1992 uh, when it was formed. Bruce Gagnon, a wonderful organizer, the finest organizer I've ever known in my life. He learned uh, from Cesar Chavez, from Cesar Chavez how to organize. He's the coordinator. It's truly a global network with members all over the world doing demonstrations, doing conferences, doing all kinds of peaceful things to try to keep space for peace. Keep space for peace. I mean, it's bad enough on Earth that we have war. Bad enough, but it it shouldn't go up into space. It's bad enough on Earth that we have uh, nearly 500 nuclear power plants, and one or another will be another Chernobyl, another Three Mile Island, another Fukushima. About every six, seven years, these things, these terrible disasters happen with enormous loss of life. Speaking of Dr. Yablokov, he and a grouping of European scientists did an important book on the consequences of the Chernobyl accident, which calculate near a million people have died as a result of the fallout from Chernobyl. Terrible enough to have nukes on Earth, and they all should be shut down, and we should go with safe, clean, renewable, green power, energy that we can live with, but nuclear power should not be, should not be overhead. It, it should not be in space. It should not be anywhere. Carol, there's always so much that we can discuss with each other, and we do both before and after these interviews. We'll have you back again soon. But for now, (laughs) I want to thank you for the wealth of information, the terminal depression, and for being my guest this week on Nuclear Hot Seat. Again, it's, it's always a pleasure that you provide such important information to people. That was veteran environmental journalist, author, and professor Carl Grossman. We'll have plenty of links posted on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 508, to some of the resources that Carl mentioned during the interview. These will include Chernobyl, Consequences of the Catastrophe for People and the Environment, and Carl's terrific book, Cover Up what you are not supposed to know about nuclear. 
If you want a basic grounding in what's wrong with the industry and the technology, Cover Up is the book to read. The links are to Amazon, which makes it easy for me to do. And I encourage you to order them through a local independent bookstore, if at all possible. And on a really happy note, Carl has agreed to join us here on Nuclear Hot Seat on a regular basis. And we look forward to sharing lots and lots more of his encyclopedic knowledge of all things nuclear with you in the coming months. Activists, activists, shout out, shout out, shout out. There's always a lot of talk about what it takes to get young activists into the movement. And the answer is pay them for the work and they will be able to do it and not have to worry about getting subsistence jobs. So that's exactly what Beyond the Bomb is doing. They have something called the Future First Fellowship for Young People. Define young as you will. And here to tell us more about it is Rachel Trazik. She is a field organizer for Beyond the Bomb and a former winner of the Future First Fellowship. Here, she explains not only what the fellowship is about and how to apply for it, she explains exactly what it has done to change her life. And we start with the basic information. What is Beyond the Bomb? Beyond the Bomb is a grassroots organization that is trying to pass a no-first-use policy, which basically means that the United States would not launch a first attack against another nation. And it tries to do this by framing the argument in a way that brings intersectional perspectives and the human experience to the forefront of our advocacy. Beyond the Bomb is offering something called the Future First Fellowship. What is that? Beyond the Bomb's Future First Fellowship is an opportunity to uplift new and upcoming voices in the nuclear sphere. What we try to do is we try to center intersectional activism at the part at the forefront of everything that we do. So for instance, I actually was part of their first inaugural cohort and I came in not knowing much about nuclear weapons or anything like that. And Beyond the Bomb's fellowship gave me the skills to not only grow as an activist, but become more involved within my community. And we try to extend this to the fellows where we believe we take a decentralized approach to organizing, meaning that we believe that people know what best their community needs. They just need the skills and the confidence and the tool set to do that. So really through this fellowship, our goal is to bring these new progressive voices into this movement and elevate these voices, giving them the skills that they need to be successful. Who is this open to? Who are you looking for to apply for this fellowship? The Beyond the Bomb Fellowship is open to anyone who is a young intersectional activist. We really want people who have an understanding of intersectionality and the broader context that these issues do fit into. We're open to applicants of almost any background. We've had fellows in the past that are from high school, community colleges, or college student graduates. We're open to anyone. We just want to uplift voices of people who want a better and safer future and are willing to have the passion and the drive to work towards that every day. So two points of definition here. How do you define young? Because in this movement, anybody under 60 looks pretty young to us. (laughs) And a little more clarity about what you mean by intersectionality. Intersectionality is we want to acknowledge that not only people ourselves are intersectional with our identities that we attach. So for instance, one person is composed of a multitude of identities, whether they are race, class, gender. Intersectionality is such an important thing as a movement to hold at the forefront of it. 
but also we want the movement itself to be intersectional. So a lot of people don't come into the nuclear sphere talking about nuclear weapons as just nuclear weapons. They come in because they've been brought in through climate justice or women's rights. And me, myself, I was brought in because I saw what it had done to my community as a New Mexican with the frontline communities and downwind communities of New Mexico. So we want to highlight the different things can bring people into this space. It doesn't always have to be policy. It doesn't always have to be just one track. And I think that through that, we really build a movement that's really strong and is going to create a better future advocating for these issues. What has the program given to you or done for you as an example? That is a very hard question because to say that this program changed my life forever is honestly an understatement. The thing that I got the most out of it was before this, I had gone in and nuclear weapons were something that wasn't really talked about at all in my life. They were just brushed over in high school education and just seeing the way that nuclear weapons had impacted my community of New Mexico. So the people of New Mexico were the first people to see the impact of a nuclear weapon from the Trinity testing site. The government reported my home is remote and uninhabited, but there were 70,000 people living in the area at the time. Most of these were not warned or evacuated and somewhere is living as close as 11 miles to the Trinity testing site. Beyond the Bomb and its fellowship gave me the skills to not only mobilize my community and get involved, but also work on a larger scale towards passing these policies that can not only help and protect people, but that are just right because a nuclear weapon would result in the end of society and the end of the world as we know it, and they aren't talked about enough. So it not only gave me the skills to become a better activist, but it also helped me really get in touch with my community. And at the end of the day, all I want to do is help people. And through helping my community, I think this fellowship pushed me to grow as an individual and as a person. This sounds like a fabulous opportunity. How can someone who identifies with the parameters you've already put forward apply for this? The fellowship application is available through our website. The deadline to apply is April 30th. And what we do require for people to apply is a cover letter and a writing example. We do ask. It is optional for a letter of recommendation, a resume, and we do have essay questions people can answer. Those are optional, however. And of course, if anyone ever has any questions, I can give you my email and they can reach out to me or Tristan about it. We will link both to the website and to your personal email if people have questions. And for now, Rachel Trazik, thanks so much for being a young person who has joined in our movement and is dedicated in the way you are and for being on Nuclear Hot Seat this week. Thank you so much. And thank you, Rachel Trazik, for all the good work you have already done and especially all the good work you will be doing in the coming years. We will have a link up to the application process at NuclearHotSeat.com under this episode, number 509. And there will also be contact information for Rachel should you want to have a more personal conversation about what this award is all about. We look forward to a deluge of young listeners applying for the job and talking with you in the coming years about the work that you are doing. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, March 16, 2021. Material for this week's show has been researched and compiled from nuclear-news.net, deunrenard.wordpress.com, Beyond Nuclear, the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, greenpeace.org, japantimes.co.jp, 
hani.co.kr, japantoday.com, thebulletin.org, kyotonews.net, seattletimes.com, hindustantimes.com, nhk.or.jp, counterpunch.org, koreaherald.com, asahi.com, cincinnati.com, mlive.com, currentargus.com, newsbreak.com, reviewjournal.com, msn.com, monroenews.com, euronews.com, mirror.co.uk, theferret.scot, news.az, the smug liars and soul-dead cubicle drones that write the propaganda press releases and talking points for world nuclear news, and the captured and compromised by the industry they're supposed to be regulating, Nuclear Regulatory Commission. Thanks to all of you for listening, and a big shout-out to Nuclear Hot Seat listeners and followers around the world in 123 countries on six continents and counting, as well as those who are listening to us on broadcast through the Pacifica Audio Port Network. Hey, don't miss a single episode of Nuclear Hot Seat. You can have it delivered to your email inbox every week by going to NuclearHotSeat.com, look for the big yellow box, and sign up with your first name and an email address. No spam, just solid nuclear information once a week. You can also catch the show on any of your favorite podcast formats. Now, you're in places that I'm not, and I need your help. So if you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. And if you appreciate weekly verifiable news updates about nuclear issues around the world, take a moment to go to nuclearhotseat.com, look for that big red button, click on it, follow the prompts, and know that anything you can do will help, and we will really appreciate your support. This episode of Nuclear Hot Seat is copyright 2021, Libby Halevi and Hardestry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed, as long as proper attribution is provided. And by that I mean not just a link, but please, mention the show by name. It will go a long way to helping us let people know that this is a resource and it is available. This is Libby Halevi of Hardestry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that what you don't know about nuclear can hurt you, and it probably already has. Sorry about that. There you go. That is your nuclear wake-up call. So please, whatever you do, don't go back to sleep, because we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seat. What are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat. What have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat. The corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb.